you have a responsibility to show them respect, to listen to them, and to understand their own story. By the way, when you do that, you feel better. And in doing it, you drive more profitability. So they both work hand in hand. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the show today. We have a fantastic guest uh, just talking uh, pre-show a little bit. Uh, respect this this man's heart and the work that he's doing in the world and uh, and the book that he has written. I know you're going to find it very aligned and uh, it's everything that you tune in to this show for. So our guest today is Donata Tremuto, who is the uh, global, he is a global health activist. He's the former CEO of Tivity Health and founder of the Tremuto Foundation and Health E-Villages. He was the recipient of the prestigious Robert F. Kennedy Ripple of Hope Award in 2014, alongside a few people you might have heard of, uh, Hillary Clinton, Robert De Niro, and Tony Bennett, and the 2017 Robert F. Kennedy Embracing His Legacy Award. And the reason that Donato is with us today is he's recently released a book called The Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. So I know that you know We've got a friend here on the show today. The double bottom line, how compassionate leaders captivate hearts and deliver results. Donato Tremuto, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank you very, very much. Uh, it's a, an honor and privilege to be here today. Well, it is. Uh, we are honored to have you here with us and and get to talk a little bit about this concept of compassionate leadership. Uh, definitely near and dear to my heart. And uh, so you've got a lot of, of important and practical things to, to say. Uh, around that subject. Before we dive into the book, if you wouldn't mind taking us back um, to whatever, however far you would go to answer this question, to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. Well, first of all, thank you for asking that question, because I do think that um, the loss of my hearing at age eight uh, was a very turning point in my life. Um, I was a, a, had a twin brother. I um, I failed the fifth grade, which was quite uh, embarrassing when you have a twin brother who you tend to be very competitive with. But at the same time, a year or two later, my brother died in a car accident. And then when I finally had my hearing restored, my sister-in-law, who was my speech pathologist and is responsible for my ability to speak fluently today, died in childbirth uh, because of a medication error. And I share those stories with you because it was during those, uh, you know, tragedies. And I, I write about this in my first book, Life's Bulldozer Moments, that I really started to recognize that you can either wallow in those uh, uh, tragedies or you can step up and take a leadership position. And at a young age, even though I couldn't hear, I was the one that kept my family together. I was the one that comforted my father and mother through the tragic death of my brother. And my brother, I actually moved in uh, and took care of the baby. The baby lived. Uh, my sister-in-law died, but the baby lived. And I actually moved in and took care of this baby at 16 years old with a hearing loss. And so my point is, I started to recognize at that point that leadership is about understanding the pain of others 
and then doing something about it. I could have certainly went off and, you know, hit it in a corner. And I don't think anybody would have, you know, faulted me for that. However, I took a different path. And so I think that, you know, my father, may he rest in peace, was just an amazing, you know, you know, leader, but he also had this intuitive insight that I don't think, you know, I even have. He predicted at a young age that even though I had a handicap, he predicted that I would go far in my life. And I don't know how he he, he knew that, uh, David. I guess parents know about their children. Uh, however, he um, he did um, he did identify it correctly. And I think what he identified is that I had this sense of compassion, and I was not going to feel sorry for myself. I was going to really help others. That is tremendous. Uh, first, I'm you know, and it's one of these things I hesitate uh, to say, but I, I am sorry that you had to go through those things as a young person. And at the same time, I recognize the power and the transformative impact that that they had on your life, and that so much of uh, the topic we're talking about today and compassionate leadership. And I see this with many guests and, and many folks that we have on the program, and I've seen it in my own life, is that so much of that compassion is born from some of those moments of suffering and difficulty and those experiences that we have that can I don't know what the right word is, but somehow openness to the experience of others. Well, I think you said it very well. And, you know, listen, no one invites tragedies into their life. I don't think if I had a choice, you know, I probably would have traded my life for a life that didn't have those uh, bulldozer moments. However, I have to be perfectly upfront with you is that I have seen many of my peers from my generation who have had pretty much of an easy ride. And, you know, I have observed a totally different approach to charitable organizations, uh, to wanting to get involved. And so I feel very special at times that uh, while it was a difficult life, um, a life that did have moments of, you know, severe sadness, it really did help me understand the pain of others and understand that um, I wake up every day with this belief, someone has it worse than me. And while I might think that my life has had challenges, always remember someone has it worse than you. And, you know, I didn't, my challenges in life did not stop with the hearing loss and the loss of my brother and my sister-in-law. You know, September 11th was a very uh, transformative day for the entire world. For me, it was uh, personally, you know, having lost my two friends and their three-year-old, uh, a flight that I was supposed to be on. Um, I think had I not had the previous challenges, I'm not so sure I would have been able to handle that. Mm -hmm. And it was going back. I think that's the good thing about bulldozer moments is you're able to go back and evaluate, how did I handle that situation? And for me, uh, it's been really a remarkable tutorial book to go back and know that I can survive, that I can survive anything. The strength that that the, those moments produce is there for us when we need it again. Yes. Well, as we get into talking about compassion, compassionate leadership, so the the, the title of the new book that you have out, it's available now, is The Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. So just let's start with the title. Let's just un walk us through what is the double bottom line when we're talking about there are two bottom lines. Well, and it's it's very funny, you know. I um, 
I have to laugh because my publisher actually had sent the titles that they wanted. And I said, no, no, no. I finally landed on this title because it's not one uh, or the other. It's it's an and. And, you know, I'm not proposing, you know, that you don't watch, you know, the profitability of a company. My gosh, you know, we would never be able to to survive with that type of mentality. And the workforce, quite frankly, wouldn't be able to survive. However, it's not forgetting the other. The ability to inspire, the ability to show compassion, uh, the ability to understand that it's not a hierarchical kind of leadership that makes it in a company today, and to recognize that every single person to whom you have invited, and remember, you invite those individuals into your organization. And so just like you invite your children into your home and their friends, you have a responsibility to show them respect to listen to them and to understand their own story. And that's why I say it's an and. And by the way, when you do that, you feel better. And in doing it, you drive more profitability. So they both work hand in hand. Well, let's let's dive into that just a little bit more in terms of driving more profitability. It's one of the concepts that comes up on this show regularly is there's being a human-centered leader because it is the humane, human and right in quotes, thing to do. And then there is the business case for it. And so, and you've made both of those uh, just in, in the moment here. So unpack for us the business case as you have experienced it. Well, first of all, one of the things that I made sure that I did not do in this book, that it was not the gospel according to Donato. I wanted to make sure that I did not have anyone who would come back and say, well, that's according to his, his viewpoint. Yes, I do bring my stories in, um, but as you know, David, we interviewed nearly 41 world leaders, and I venture to say whoever reads this book will recognize probably a dozen or two of the leaders mm -hmm. uh, and will appreciate their stories. And so uh, I share a lot of my own stories, um, but what was validating for me? And I never realized that this would come out of the book, and you know, if nothing else comes out of this book, I think this was really validating for me is that we came up with the definition for compassionate leadership. And it was after having conducted all of the interviews, and then we did the survey of 1,500 individuals, and we came up with the definition, compassionate leadership is empathy in action. Now, where I'm going with this to your question is as I looked at my past, the majority of the times I did that. Example, there was one time when I was a CEO at Tivity Health, uh, they had a, um, uh, an elevator for the CEO and executives. I never took that unless I was on a conference call with an analyst and I couldn't share information. But the majority of the time I took the elevator that everyone else took. And it was 6.30 in the morning and one of our employees got on and I would always ask the question, how was your day? How was your night? Well, that question led to this employee sharing with me that his entire family had been ambushed in Iraq and everyone lost their lives but his mother and his aunt and he was hysterical he had no money and I said come to my office and we started a fund on that day gave him time off so he could go back to his family that's empathy in action and so it was really revealing to me that the majority of the times I did practice that and it did instill in the company 
the responsibility that we have as leaders. I had a platform and that platform could either be used to the advantage of you know, self-centered advantage or it could be used to the advantage of all uh, employees. And I chose the latter. And at any level, whatever platform you have, the same holds true, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, by the way, this book is not just for business leaders. It's for families. I mean, we are, we have an enormous amount of trust decay going on in the country and in the world. Families have had huge arguments because if you're on this side of an argument and not that side, the families tend to separate. We have an enormous opportunity, whether it's business or in the church or in our community, to practice this kind of, of leadership. And one of the examples that I give is that we, we need to start listening to understand, not listening to react. I've watched this over the last number of years, and I'll say to you know somebody, whoa, let David finish his, his explanation. What happens is the minute you hear a name you don't like or an issue you disagree with, you don't give the other person a chance to share their own why. And so one of the arguments that we make in the book is that we need to move away from what divides us. When we start sitting down with people and we start talking about their lives and somebody starts to share that, oh, yeah, I'm living with cancer. Oh, you're living with cancer. So am I. What type of cancer do you have? Before you know it, we start to see the common denominator between the two individuals. So David, you're absolutely correct. This is not a book just for business leaders. It's really for all people who want to improve and optimize their relationships with one another. And that definitely comes out in the book talking about even for business leaders, the types of uh, leadership in terms of the, the direct team leadership, the existence of the community within the business, the broader community outside of the organization and all the way out. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that you came up with a definition of compassionate leadership. And I, I, I love to make sure we're all defining terms and on the same page as we continue our discussion here. So can you help us understand what do you mean and what definition emerged from your research uh, that is compassionate leadership? Absolutely. And so there are a lot of people um, who, when we were interviewing them, uh, we would ask, you know, tell us what compassionate leadership is. And you would have a lot who said, well, it's being kind. No, that, that's common to all of us. What distinguished the 41 leaders that we finally narrowed down for the interview, by the way, it was only supposed to be 10. And we ended up at 41 because it was just such a compelling exercise. We found that they did something that they took it to the next level. But what we also found is that the empathy, what was unique about the empathy, and I think quite frankly, we've seen this right now with the invasion of Russia into Ukraine. You have two different leaders there. You have one leader, President Zelensky, who's demonstrated the trait of compassionate leadership by staying with his people, understanding the pain that they are going through and pleading with the other side to let's sit down and discuss a peaceful solution. But what we also uncovered in the research, when a leader lacks empathy, they lose the ability to adapt their approach because they can't see further than their own point of view. And it's almost playing out on the world stage is that you have one leader who is closed circuit in terms of understanding what other people are trying to 
to, to communicate to them. And yet bombing hospitals with innocent children and pregnant women is not what I would call an empathetic leadership approach. And so empathy in action, understanding the other person's point of view, and then be willing to adapt your approach to do something. And I think if you bring that in to the equation, I think you will see yourself being very, very effective. I've had to adapt my approach so many different times. Let me give you a great example, if I may. When I became the CEO of Tivity Health, at that time it was Healthways, I was chairman of the board. Now, let me say this to you, David. As chairman of the board, you think you know everything about the company. You actually don't. It took my becoming the CEO to know what was going on. But my message here is that we had two divisions, one that was making a lot of money, one that was losing a lot of money. Well, I was born at night, but not last night. When you add the two together, quite frankly, you have an unprofitable organization. Now, I could have shut down the subperforming division in the first month of my tenure as CEO. I didn't do that. You know what I did? I spent six months interviewing more than 2,000 of the 2,500 employees to find out what was going on in the company. That was by far one of the best. And by the way, Howard Schultz is doing that right now with Starbucks. I just love his approach. What I learned in the six months is that shutting that division down would have been a mistake. We would have put 1,500 employees on the street. We would have lost customers. So by listening to the employees, I did something that had never been done before. I paid another company to take the division. Had never been done before, as far as I know of, to pay another company $25 million to take that division. But let me tell you what the results were. The day it was announced, the stock doubled. Not one employee lost their job. I asked the other company to use the six months to a year to evaluate how they would integrate these employees in the company. Today, both companies are thriving, the company that I left and the company that took the division over. That's empathy, being able to understand what's going on and adapting your approach. I adapted my approach. I never had this preconceived notion that I would imagine walking into the boardroom and telling the board members, after putting a billion dollars of investment in this division, we're not going to get a single dollar for it. So that's the empathetic, compassionate leadership that I talk about in the book. And you know, the other element there is that you had customers that needed that product and, and were relied on it and who were able to continue to receive it. And by the way, they, they were buying the other services from the other division. So to your point, if I would have just let them down and said, goodbye, the company is not profitable, even though I've had a relationship with you on both sides, we're going to leave you hanging. And so uh, a good call, David, is that it, it would have been just catastrophic. And by the way, we would have impacted the culture of the remaining company by saying to them, the responsibility to take care of our employees doesn't exist. We just put 1,500 people on the street. And you know what is interesting to me about that uh, story? And I I'd certainly, and, and for readers, you will find that in the, the latter part of the book, uh, or second half anyway, the what was interesting to me about that story is that, as you said, there's not a manual that, you know, you can read that says that's the kind of solution you want to find. It was born out of listening. It was born out of 
saying, all right, there are the traditional approaches. We're bleeding money here. We've tried to sell it. It's we, you, you had like, what, 20 offers or something like that, and there's none of them worked out. So it wasn't going to happen, but we need to be profitable. That's an imperative. And so it's like, okay, so when you talk about the double bottom line, I love the example because you got the actual numbers bottom line, and then you've got the people bottom line, and you didn't ever make it an either or. You said, how do I take care of both of these bottom lines? And when you ask a question like that, you find an answer like the one you found. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about the listening approach. And um, I introduced this concept, uh, if you recall, called the three T's. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. And I know it sounds kind of hokey, but it is something that really helped me is that if you're going to practice compassionate leadership, then you need to practice the three T's. And that is to start off with tenderness first and then get the trust. And then once you have the trust, you can be tenacious. Too many leaders start with tenacity and then they go around with a pooper scooper because nobody, nobody will trust you. It takes a little bit longer. I will admit that to the viewers. It takes a little bit longer. But once you have the trust, then you have the capacity to make those tough decisions coming from a good place as opposed to people are then adding their own color commentary, which place is Donato really coming from? Is he just trying to get the stock up? Is he just trying to make himself you know, look good? Once you get the trust, then you have the relationship that has developed and you can make some of these tough decisions because trust me, I've had to make some tough decisions in my lifetime. However, the majority of them were made coming from a place of tenderness, to get the trust and then tenacity. You know, the, those three T's get at uh, an important aspect of compassionate leadership. When we're talking about compassion, you start early in the book by dispelling a couple of myths around compassion. When we're thinking about compassionate leadership, there are three of them that, uh, and you already touched on one, that being compassionate is the same as being nice or, or kind, and then that's not the case. Uh, how do you distinguish it? So let's just encapsulate that for us for a moment. Well, I think, you know, listen, being nice would have been, if you go back to the example that I gave you with the gentleman in the elevator, uh, being nice would have been, um, hey there, how, you know, how are you? Good. Have a good day. And then you move on. And that happens too many times. We're having versations, not conversations. And so that's why I'm saying is you can make the tough decisions. However, you move beyond this, you know, cordial, uh, how are you, nice to see you, to really being able to engage in understanding the person's story. In that case, I really understood the person's story. And then, and by the way, there are going to be times when you may not be able to take an action. And there have been moments uh, where I have been able to say, but you have to be honest and say, I really can't help you out in this one. Uh, and I've done that many times. My first approach to people uh, when I understand their problems. It's probably just my Myers-Briggs makeup is to try to help them. However, there have been times when I've said, geez, on this one, I really can't help you. However, if you have a history where you have followed through on your commitments, whether it's you can help the person or you can't, that's strong leadership. And so we do go through each one and dispel uh, these myths. You know, for many, many years, I'll be honest with you, when I would uh, relate to my CEO colleagues that I was a compassionate leader, they would tell me, oh, that's that's weak leadership, Donato. And then I would say, well, show me where it was weak leadership. Every company that I have been a part of, 
I have started companies. I have started not-for-profits. I have been an author of two books. And I would think that when you look back, there is, I think, some success in all of that. And so it's not weak. And I think you have to, and by the way, the other thing you have to really tie with this is you must be willing to be vulnerable. And the more you're willing, in fact, there's a great line um, from one of the individuals that we interviewed. I love this line, you rent your title, you own your dignity. And that is what dispels the notion of weak leadership. Driving your title is weak leadership. Because case in point, I've been out of my CEO role activity for two and a half years. I've had a CEO of a public company or private company for nearly 25 years. Yeah, and I'm now CEO chairman of a you know not-for-profit foundation. But my point is, I did not need a title to show my leadership. These 41 leaders that we interviewed, all the way from political leaders to business leaders, um, they were individuals that respected the person I am, not the title that I represent. And so I think we have to break that notion down that you need a title to lead. You don't need a title. In fact, I think there was a book a number of years ago, right? The Leader Absolutely. Without a Title. And so we, we, we do get into this notion of vulnerability to get the trust and the opportunity to know that if you're honest and you have a relationship, you will be able to demonstrate um, strong decision-making. Well, and the, the intersection, uh, you touched on this earlier, so bringing together these threads about strength and vulnerability and the ability to, in your listening, in your empathy, to, to take a different course of action, to not be tied to your limited viewpoint. That's easy to say. And, and the reality is, I think it's on some level, it is one of the most challenging things for human beings to do, to truly say what I thought I knew might not be as true as I thought it was, and to be open to saying, hmm, and I'm going to learn. And for whatever reason, that seems to get harder as we get into adulthood than, than when we're you know, six or seven and in, in that kind of learning the whole world mode and, and asking, hey, well, how's that work? Why is that that way? But the the strength of that, the the confidence that it takes to, to be centered and grounded enough to re recognize that that isn't weakness at all, that it requires an incredible amount of centeredness and strength to actually do that is tremendous. Well, it's why we wrote the book. I mean, you know, Harvard came up with a report a few years ago that 80% of leaders want to be compassionate, but don't know how. I love that figure. Yeah, And so, you know, the reality is, I'll give you a great example. During COVID, I was um, uh, helping a number of CEOs and executives. And there was this one executive who had reached out to me, said, I don't know what I did wrong. I called this uh, executive um, from, you know, a client list to find out where the PO was. And he said, I got on the phone and that executive told me about his wife and kids had COVID. I said, well, how did you handle it? He said, well, I, I said, oh, I, I feel bad. Uh, where's the PO? I said, oh my gosh, you don't say that at all. He didn't know that it was okay to maybe put the PO to the side for that particular Zoom call and maybe get into what can I do? What does your family need? And so I am convinced that the majority of people who are struggling with this don't know 
that they can be kind and tender and then get to the, you know, you know, tenacity part. And so it's funny, one of the greatest things that I think has happened out of this book is my, my, you know, you know challenging this notion that, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It does not. Trust does. How do you put a culture and strategy in place when you don't have the trust? It's almost like saying, you know, to somebody you're dating, um, we're, we're going to have 10 kids on the first date. You get to know the person, you get to build the trust, you get to build this sense of connection. And then you start talking about various topics that are important to you. And so I believe that what the gift we are going to give from this book, and by the way, I can announce this on here today, uh, Boston University School of Public Health, they are going to be converting the book into an executive curriculum. It'll be a digital course where executives can take the course and get a certification from the Boston School of Public Health. We have two other colleges that are thinking about doing the same. I'm heading to Europe next year, uh, 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 next week. We have a university out there. There is a tidal wave where I think the educational system has finally come to realize that we don't teach this in medical school. We don't teach it in business school. We don't teach it in you know, liberal arts and you know, law school. So I think for me, this is not a book, it's a movement. We are going to do our very best to help others learn that they can also be compassionate. By the way, that's another thing that came out of the book is that it can be taught. Uh, that was what definitely one of the interesting points that I, th I thought you made and that I wanted to ask you about because you have everyone listening right now wants to be a part of that movement, is a part of that movement, is committed to human-centered leadership and, and figuring out how to practically do that from wherever they are. And so you, you give us the roadmap and the definition of empathy plus action, that it's it's that's where the impact comes from and that's at the heart of compassionate leadership. So. And I love that that uh, quote, the 80% of managers want to be more compassionate. And it's not necessarily whether a leader should be compassionate. And uh, let me, I pulled this quote from the book I wanted to, the question today is not whether a leader should be compassionate. That's a given based on the proven positive impact it has on people and profits. And because today's workplace, workforce and world are increasingly demanding it. The real question is how to practice compassionate leadership so that it's effective. And so with some of the time that we have left, I'd like to get into some of that how. Um, and starting with ourselves, so as leaders ourselves, and then I would like to get to eventually where we were just going, which is, and how do we spread it? How do we teach it? But let's start with ourselves. If listening to this, say, yes, I want to be a more compassionate leader. Where do we begin? What are some of the practical steps that we should be taking? I think the first most important thing is I forget, I think it was Socrates who once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. One of the elements of compassion and leadership to get to the how is to examine what you did during the day, sometime at night or before you go to bed. Let me give you a great example. There was um, an example I give in the book where I was on the plane having a conference call with my executives. The um, the doors to the plane had not closed. And we got into this one really tough topic. And one of my executives, I was trying to be tender. I thought I had the trust and then I had to be tenacious. Well, I was tenacious and you could tell that it shut down this particular executive. 
Well, then all of a sudden the doors close to the plane. The plane takes off. You know, for the two and a half hours, I felt terrible. And that's the one benefit that you really get out of compassionate leadership is that you feel better when you've done the right thing. When that plane landed, what do you think I did? I had a chance to self-reflect. I realized that although I may have felt that I was the CEO and I had every right to move the dialogue in a different direction, it was wrong to do it in front of 11 people. I called that executive up. I apologized. And before you knew it, she apologized. And we both kind of had a little bit of a tear up. And she said, I've never had a CEO call me and apologize. Mm. So the first and foremost of practicing this is to self-reflect on your day. We are dynamic human beings. We are going to make mistakes. I've made plenty of them. And with maturity, I was able to acknowledge those mistakes and be able to confront them, not only you know, in my own self-reflection, but with others. That's the first. The second is to know that this is a process. You don't wake up one day, just like if you needed a root canal, you wouldn't go on the street and pull somebody off the street to do your root canal. Well, the same thing with compassion and leadership. It takes time. And I think by reading the book, I think by practicing it, I think by understanding the definition that it's action correlated with empathy, and it's truly understanding the pain of others, which means you have to listen to understand and not listen to react. And the only way you can listen to understand is you let the person finish their conversation with you. You put your cell phone down, you take notes, you come back and repeat what you thought you heard. How many times I do that? And I have a hearing difficulty, but how many times when I do that, the individual will come back and say, no, no, that's that's not what I, what I, and I said, fine, and don't, be embarrassed when that happens. That is dynamic conversation. And then I always ask for permission when I want to give constructive insight. I don't like the word feedback. The minute you mention feedback, boom, it's like, okay, you're coming at me. I will always ask, David, may I give you some constructive insight? And if you say no, then the conversation is over with. Most people won't say no. And so there are, you know, what I call prescriptive processes that one can take. However, the most important one is to recognize that if you want to get the trust from somebody, you've got to be willing to open up yourself. And for many, many years, I was not willing to open up. I was not willing to share my story with, with folks. And it wasn't until I received the Robert F. Kennedy Ripple of Hope Award, which was a human rights award, that I finally said to myself, why am I hiding about my my hearing loss? Why am I hiding that I failed the fifth grade? Mm. My gosh, I'm human and I'm receiving a human rights award. I should be, you know, you know, comfortable sharing with people that I have had, you know, bullying in my life. I have had letdowns in my life. And so I think those are uh, small baby steps that I think we all can take. The examination of ourselves, the entering into a place of transparency and vulnerability the, the sharing of our heart, you know, it comes back to me uh, uh, in, in the very first book I ever wrote. Uh, if we want people's hearts to be connected to the team, to the work, to the mission, as a leader, they got to see our heart. How on earth is their heart going to connect to anything less than someone else's heart? I think we've lost that, and I don't know why, you know, perhaps maybe historians will tear it apart. You know, what happened? We're faced now, David, with one of the most significant 
a chronic health issue, and it's called loneliness, that despite having the rampant amount of technology, we are faced with one of the most significant, and by the way, it's not only with the older people. I thought it was with the older people, but now I've realized it's with the younger people as well. And coming out of the pandemic has made this even more severe. And so um, there is an opportunity to go back to the basics, go back to having conversations with people, go back and listen to their stories. Everyone has a story. For those who are listening today, you've heard my story, but it's just a story. It's no better or worse than somebody else's story. However, we don't take the time. Whenever I have a dinner at my home, you may not want to come the next time, but every time I have a dinner, David, I always have a question ready. And that question allows everyone to hear the stories of the people who are there. Sometimes it's the same people that might have been involved in the last dinner, and there's a new bit of information they learn, and they'll say to me, oh my gosh, I didn't know that, even though I've known David for five years. It's because we haven't taken the time to truly get to know people to the fullest. And that's why I'm saying quit looking at what is different about us and let's find what's common about us. I, I venture to say that any person we meet, uh, we will find their common denominator. Absolutely. Well, I would welcome the opportunity. Those stories I, I certainly don't scare me off. I'll, I'm ready. Bring mm. the questions on. One of the elements that you talk about in terms of leading from a, a place of compassion and building this kind of a workplace is building community uh, at work and within our, our work. And you, you have you share a number of steps to help with that. So starting with espousing an engaging mission, um, encouraging respectful, inclusive communication. And we've been talking about that in the, the dialogue and, and truly listening uh, and giving everyone a voice is another step. I'm, I'm curious if you would, if you could explain or explore a little bit what you mean by giving everyone a voice as a leader. How do we do that? Uh, and getting to some of the practical strategies, tips, what does that look like in practice? Well, and I think you have to kind of give the facts, you know, as to why it's important. We now have five generations in the workforce. And the Gen Zers and the millennials are soon going to represent 60 to 65, inching to 70 percent of the workforce. Yet, David, the average age of the CEO right now is 59 years old. And by the way, that's the same uh, average age for our elected officials in Washington. So the group that's leading us, they were educated by those that went to universities in the 50s and 60s. So my point is, there is a huge gap here that we're not taking the time to understand. I mean, people are calling it the great resignation. It's the wrong term. I'm calling it the great reflection. People are reflecting on their lives in, in such greater you know, ways than they've ever done before. They want to be heard. They have ideas. They have lived through so much over the last 18 years that their perspective and understanding can shape the dynamics of how a company delivers products, how they you know, market products and social media. And so I'll give you a great example. I hired last year uh, right out of college. I probably would never have done this 10 years ago, but I hired a manager who's leading our entire program for the Tremuto Porter Foundation and Healthy Villages. And let me tell you, she is amazing. Catherine, 23 years old, graduated 
from St. Michael's College in Vermont, normally I would have said, hey, listen, you, you have to kind of earn your stripes. But listening to her thoughts and insights has helped me become a better leader. And by the way, it's okay if she makes a mistake. And I have found very few mistakes, but we encourage make mistakes, learn from them. Just do me one favor, learn from them. And so I don't think we have an option here anymore. I'll share with you this story. I was talking to one of our foundation laureates. He joined a consultancy firm. He was there for six weeks. The founder of the company wanted him to work on Saturday. He said, I can't. I'm hosting a bachelor party for my best friend. I can work on Sunday. Do you know what the founder of that company said? You are worthless. I am sorry that I even hired you. The pay that we're giving you, you don't even earn it. This is a 25-year-old guy who you just ruined his Friday and Saturday night. So he called me and I said, you only have one option now. And that is, that culture is not going to change. He left along with five other people. And so if you want to keep the excitement, the passion, the incredible soul in the company, you're going to have to take the time. Now, yeah, you know, we all get disappointed. Perhaps a better way of handling that is to say, you know, thank you for at least offering Sunday. Go do what you're going to do. And I appreciate, you know, you could have handled it entirely different. And so I think if we don't change the way we are leading, I think you're going to have a very difficult time um, delivering that other bottom line. And that is, you know, profitability. So we're talking with Donata Tremuto, the author of The Double Bottom Line, How Compassionate Leaders Captivate Hearts and Deliver Results. And Donata, you've been uh, expounding on the need for everyone to, to have their voice, to engage with people, to truly listen. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for leaders who are listening right now on how to help surface, cultivate, bring out the voices of the people on their teams and in their organization. You know, this is one area where I think it's very, very easy. No longer can you just follow the mantra, I have an open door policy. It just doesn't work anymore. What you have now is you need to have an open sense of going to the person and seeking them out. Yes. And, you know, what I did in my tenure is that, and it was, you know, you know difficult on my schedule. I'm going to admit to it. But my chief of staff and my assistant every single day had a couple employees on my schedule, 30 minutes, every day when I was in the office. And when I was traveling, it was by phone. And so this whole old-fashioned you know, perspective of, gosh, I'm just going to wait until somebody comes to me, that no longer works. I think you have to be the one that promotes this culture of trust, that reaching out to me is not going to be prohibited because I'm the CEO of the company. I did something one time that really, you know, shocked my HR. I gave every single employee my cell phone at a town hall meeting. I said, I am looking around here today and I feel that some of you have concerns that you just don't feel comfortable sharing. And I said, here is my cell phone. And you could see my executive saying, what the heck is he doing? You know, I had about 10% of the workforce call me. And it was kind of really cute because uh, this one person called and hung up and called and hung up. And finally, <laughs> finally, they followed through and they said, I was afraid to talk. To and then when we got done, I said, are you now afraid of talking to the CEO? She said, absolutely not. And so we have to make it comfortable that we are in this together and we will share our triumphs together. 
and we will share those moments of difficulties together. And when you do that, you open up a whole new sense of leadership that captivates hearts and deliver results. And some of our longtime listeners are going to recognize uh, some some points that you drew out that we've uh, addressed in some of our research in, in courageous cultures. Uh, and that open door is the passivity of an open door, that the need to go out and connect and ask the questions and and that, uh, you know, you were saying it doesn't work anymore. I'm not sure it ever did work, <laughs> you know, in the, in the way that you're uh, describing there. So, all right, Donato, we, we are getting close to out of time here. I want to make sure, let, but I've got a couple more questions. I want to flag a couple things that I'd like to direct people to check out in the book. We won't have time to talk about them, but I certainly want to point them in that direction. Uh, can you tell us where we can connect with you, where we can learn more, uh, get the book, and so on? Absolutely. And uh, again, let me just thank you for having me on this uh, this podcast today. It says a lot about your commitment, and I know you're an author on these very topics. And so I want to just thank you um, for having me here today. Uh, as I stated, you know, this is not a, a book. It's a movement. And so if anyone wants to get more information, donato.tremuto.com, um, uh, you can go to our website and there will be podcasts and other things that we post there that they can, you know, certainly um, extract, as well as the updates on the Boston University School of Public Health program. So by all means, I hope that people will access the um you know, the website. Absolutely. Tremendous resource for all of us. So uh, I wanted to highlight in the book this concept of collaboration. So you've got collab mm. collaboration and innovation. And I, I love this again, resonant with uh, a clarity curiosity dance that we talk about, but collaboration, if you can give us the 50,000 foot view of collaboration, then I just want to encourage our listeners get the book and read more about this. I thought it was such a powerful concept. Well, if you remember what I what I talk about is the higher your collaborative IQ, the more you can get done. And I really do think that's one of the things that, and by the way, that's what compassionate leadership, it's all about collaboration. It was one of the key nuggets to the definition. And so what we talk about is that innovation no longer cuts it. For years, and maybe it was because of, you know, Microsoft and Steve Jobs and, you know, others who drove this notion that if you were not an innovator, you were really not a successful leader. That is gone. You still have to have innovation, yet it has to be paired with integration. And that's where collaboration comes in. And I talk about this new word that I came up with, collaboration. Let's collaborate and innovate. And by gosh, we saw that with the pandemic. We saw what happened when there was collaboration. The innovation was there. The government came in and infused an enormous amount of funds to get those, you know, historical research conducted in a way that would get the vaccines out there and everybody worked together. And, you know, by gosh, you know, we were able to move forward as a country, as a world. So collaboration is something that we all can practice. And it starts again with the compassionate leadership definition. When you have empathy and you have the ability to know that empathy is about collaborating and innovating together on the ideas that will solve the problem, you'll get more done. I just love that perspective. So, so much fun there and, and dive into the book, get more on collaboration. So Donato, the last topic, uh, I prefaced it earlier and you had mentioned it and I want to get down to this question of, we've been spending a lot of time focused on cultivating, rightly so, cultivating our own compassionate leadership. And you make the point in the book and you ask the question, and then you make the point, can you teach others 
compassion, compassionate leadership. And how vital this is for any leader who's reproducing themselves and investing in people. So let's answer that question. And maybe if you can tee us up with one or two of the hows about how we teach compassion, and then we'll have to call it a show. First of all, David, you're absolutely correct. We can learn compassion. And I think that if you study the lives of those who have been just compassionate, you know, Mother Teresa, a great example uh, of an individual who really, really suffered a lot in her life and became compassionate. But I also think you have 41 leaders in the book. You have 41 leaders. I mean, Senator Elizabeth Warren gave the example of how she did not always start out having empathy towards those who were filing for bankruptcy because she felt that her own family was able to get through tough times. And so why couldn't other people get through it? And it was once she put herself, you know, into the lives of others where she realized that people who were filing for bankruptcy, they were doing it because they had health problems, that they had exhausted all of their health insurance um, uh, funds. And they were now leaning on their homes and other savings to pay for their cancer treatments. And so you can learn about compassion by understanding how other people have practiced it and realizing the pain that you might be suffering is a pain that other people can relate to if you take the time to just have the conversation with them. And so part of what I'm hearing there is the need as leaders for us to help one another to explore one another's stories that if compassion is starts with empathy and then action, we've got to start with the empathy and that story, that's connection to the other human beings. Well, well said. And, you know, it's funny you use the word story. Um, I came up with this term a few years ago. We talk about physical health. We talk about mental health. But there is story health. That the more somebody, you know, and I think Maya Angelou said it very well. People will forget what you did People will forget what you said, but they will never, ever forget how you made them feel. And the only way you can make somebody feel great is if you take the time to listen to their story. I never start any conversation. Anyone who knows me, I never start off by telling me what you do. I start off by telling me, why do you do it? That's when you get to the heart of somebody's passion. Boy, do they light up. When somebody can share their passion their commitment to doing something good because they believe in a fundamental principle, you really have made then that connection um, deeper than just asking, tell me what you do in your job. Tell me why you do what you do. Well, Donata, I so appreciate you sharing your story with us today and sharing why you do what you do and, and letting us connect for a few minutes, a few moments to your story. And I know, I trust that that's going to be moving for our listeners and listeners encourage you find one story that you can connect with today, tomorrow, over the course of this week and help make some of those connections and open up some of those stories on your team so that you can be the leader you'd want your boss to be. Donato, thank you so much for being a guest with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And you make it a great day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.